Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. How are you? I have a, I have a very mellow tone right now because it's 8.30 at night and, uh, and I, I, should, I should be winding down, getting ready for bed, but I'm not. I'm, uh, I'm feeling uh, I have a second wind and supercharged, which is dangerous for those of you out there who struggle with uh, depression and uh, especially manic depression. We we feel those highs and we want to ride them, and and then it what happens is uh, it jacks up our sleep, and then our sleep jacks up our performance for the next day, and then it becomes this domino effect of poor sleeping habits, which then leads into poor eating habits, et cetera. You know, you know what happens when you don't go to bed on time. It's something that your mom, really the, the key to success in life, for the most part, for most people, is just listening to what your mom said. Wash your hands before you eat. Go to bed. You know, no, no TV before bed. Read a book. Um, you know, say thank you and please. Uh, go play, you know, yeah, my mom was always telling me to, oh, she really didn't have to tell me to go play. I was just always outside. Uh, but, you know, go play. No no dessert until you, you eat your food. And, and that can be a metaphor for so many other things in our life. But, uh, and, and, you know, sit down at the table to eat. Don't, don't don't put your you know don't ruin your dinner. Don't stand up in the kitchen to eat. Don't be dibbling and dabbling. Uh, but you know all these these tiny things uh, that that matter. You know, write thank you cards to people who send you things. So important. And uh, you know, go sit in a corner when you've uh, done something wrong and. Of course, as adults, you're not going to sit in the corner with a with a dunce cap on. But it's good to to meditate, to go uh, sit on, you know, to sit with your feelings, and uh, and see what what surfaces, what comes up for you. So uh, make sure you 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 take time for yourself. You deserve it. You've you've done enough. For, for now, for today, no, no need to uh, burn the candle at both ends. I'm saying that as I'm burning the candle at both ends, but uh, do as I say, not as I do. That's another thing your mom <laughs> would say to you. Uh, uh, so today's episode is, is fascinating. I have uh, a grief counselor, Alyssa Shankin, on, and especially during this quarantine, uh, so many people are, are grieving in different ways. And when we think about grief, it's not just about uh, losing, I won't say losing someone, but it's not just about uh, someone passing away that's close to us or um, you know, being fired or let go from a job and, and seeking unemployment. Grief could also be a, a lifestyle, a change in lifestyle, whether you're going from rich to poor or poor to rich or single to married or, or you know, or, or from 300 pounds to 150 pounds. You know, that weight loss journey, as, as beautiful as everyone paints it, is, 
is not uh, is not easy. It's full of challenges. And then even once you get to the weight that you've desired, uh, you may find that uh, there's still other internal battles to be waged. Uh, so when we talk about grief, we're, we're, it, it extends to so many, uh, to all six areas of wellness in our life. We also, but we, What's fascinating is we start this podcast off talking about uh, high achievers, high performers who she also works with that come to her uh, when they're stuck. And a lot of us get stuck. And even if you're, you don't consider yourself a high achiever, high, but we all get stuck. We're all, we, we all find ourselves in a rut or, you know, as my coach would say, going through the motion. So we start off talking about what to do when you're there and, and how do you get uns- how do you, how do we get out of the quicksand? And, um, and of course we talk about, um, preventing suicide. She works with a lot of people who've either lost someone to suicide, uh, or who have contemplated suicide. So we talk about how do we work through that? This is a, this is a powerful episode and a fun one. And, uh, and, and I, in advance, want to thank you for sharing. That has been so valuable. The, the downloads are uh, going through the roof exponentially. And also not just the downloads, but the reach. I, I see you out there in Thailand downloading and uh, in South America and Asia and London and uh, Australia. And even there are parts of, you know, I see Texas and New Orleans and San Fran, Los Angeles, Chicago. I see you, New York, showing up. Uh, L.A., of course, has much love. And, uh, and parts of Omaha, Montana, I, I, I really I, I, I thank you for seeing all these uh, increases in downloads. And um, it means a lot. But it also means that more people need help and more people need to hear the message. So go to thrivewithleo.com one-on-one coaching with yours truly if you're struggling with tragedies traumas or transitions and with that said let's get into the episode welcome to another episode of before you kill yourself joining me today is grief therapist Alyssa Shankin she is a licensed mental health counselor and a national certified counselor who specializes in helping children adults and families cope with life's challenges Life challenges include counseling for the dying, the bereft, divorce, mental and medical illnesses, infertility, job loss, and relocation, just to name a few. Her experience is in both private practice and with Hospice Care Network. Alyssa is licensed in New York, New Jersey, and Florida. Her uh, clients are comp- composed, compromised, compo- composed of people who have mental health challenges and those that don't have any diagnosis, but they also have a specific challenge that want that they want help with. Some of my clients, some of her clients, are survivors of loved ones uh, who have completed suicide or have lost a loved one due to a tragedy. Some are high-powered executives who come for coaching to target a skill that has served them but is no longer serving them. Welcome to the podcast, Alyssa Shankin. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you, thank you, Leo, for having me. I'm, you know, I'm fascinated by this, 
we definitely want to get into the grief and 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 people who are dealing with tragedy. But I'm really fascinated by the high-powered executives who come for coaching to target a skill that has no long that has served them, but is no longer serving them. Can you speak more to that? Right. Absolutely. So often people get to where they want to go and then all of a sudden they plateau or they hit a wall. And a lot of times maybe they're a type A personality and that served them and they did their work and they dotted every I and crossed every T. But now they're in a position of power and they're overseeing other people. And you can't necessarily relate to other people if you don't also show your side of compassion. But they never needed to do that. They relied on a different skill or maybe they were highly intelligent and they didn't need to socialize. But now they're required to do things that they didn't really have to do. So they are literally changing and rewiring and rewriting some old habits. And so one of the techniques we actually use when we first start out is we start flagging the behavior. I literally have my clients make a flag out of construction paper because that disrupts the pattern when you do something silly like that, but it's also tangible. And then I ask them, how often do we need to wave this flag throughout the day? So the first thing they start to do is they recognize how often they go into the pattern and where it is serving them and where it isn't serving them. And then they have the choice to change the behavior. And so we really target specific behaviors like that. When you say a flag, I love this idea of a flag. Are they just <laughs> waving this in therapy? Are they waving it at home? Like, uh, help, help me understand the, the use of this this flag. Are, are they putting it okay. like in their car as they're driving around? Like, like they're a Dodger you know fan. Like, Leo, people have surprised and amazed me. They do all sorts of things with this flag. I make the suggestion and I say, use it however it's going to help you. If you make it in this office and never use it again, it's served its purpose. But if you can use it when you get home at night and maybe flag the behaviors and wave your flag, or I mean, I've literally had some people carrying it in their briefcase or their purse, whatever it takes to remind you, some people have it on their dashboard. Um, it's, it's really just something to disrupt the pattern. And so it's it's individualized, you know, as all therapy is. But I definitely have my clients doing some really out there things. And that one that one's pretty mild. Um, but, yeah, it's very helpful. It's helpful for anybody. If you're in a relationship and you feel like you're doing something to your significant other that's unfair, maybe you're really hard on them and you snap at them because, you know, they leave the dishes in the sink and you hear the tone in your voice and you don't want to be that way. That might be something you flag. So the flag can be used for anybody for anything. Uh, okay, so I feel like there has to be a, a, a major flag story, though. Um, how did the flag first come about? You know, I don't remember. I really don't remember. I was helping a client, and they were very visual, and I had to come up with something visual to help them pretty much disrupt a pattern. So I, I don't remember. I'm sorry. I've got a lot of other funny stories, but nothing about the flag. Oh, my God. I love that. So you, you said you have other, uh, um, you know, out the box techniques that you help people to, uh, you know, disrupt patterns and 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 reset themselves. What, what are some other ones? So let me tell you, a lot of these um, tools, I guess, were born from grief counseling. 
And when we are grieving, we become like children. And in the sense that we get very overwhelmed and things get all confusing, we might put on two different pairs of shoes that look very similar, but they're different colors. We can't concentrate. We can't focus. So a lot of these tools are very simple um, and to the point. And the, the point of that is to kind of help you get back into a place where you feel in control. Um, so, I mean, one of the tools that I use that's not as out there, but that speaks directly to grief for maybe people at this time would be scheduling your grief, which probably sounds counterintuitive, but you actually schedule time to grieve so that when you're in the food store and you see your loved one's favorite Twinkies, you don't just lose it. Um, and so these techniques all came from there. So one of the first techniques might be the different size boxes that you've heard of. Have you ever heard of that? The small box, the medium box, the large box? Uh, it, it sounds like a, a Goldilocks uh, a fairy tale. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, <laughs> help, help me out here. Okay. In the small box, you put a problem the size of a ring. In the medium box, you put a problem the size of a bicycle. And in the large box, you put a size a problem the size of a mansion. And so often when we're grieving, sometimes we minimize the loss and we say, oh, no, no, I'm fine. I just lost my grandmother, but she was elderly and it was okay. And we minimize it. We try to shove it in the little box. And when we shove it in the little box, we come at it with little box tools. And then it seeps out and it becomes a mess. If we say, you know what, this one really hit me hard and I need to address this, then maybe it belongs in the medium box or maybe it belongs in the big box. And depending which box it belongs in is how much attention we address it with and how we focus on it. So the box can be used all different ways, but it's just a way to say, hey, what size box problem is this? So I know where my clients want to focus. I love that. You know, to, to circle back a little bit, the idea of scheduling your grief resonates because when, when my father passed away, I, I told myself that uh, I would I, I was like, all right, I'm going to cry like uh, Sunday from eight <laughs> to like 10 p.m. You know, like I was going to grieve. I, I put on some music. Uh, I think I got like a bottle of wine. I was in I was in when was that? Oh, I was uh, like 26 or no, not 26. I was a little old. But anyway. Um, but yeah, so I like I, I you know, I, I, I scheduled it and uh, I didn't cry. But you know, I just allowed myself to kind of to. to Think about him. Think about you, you know our, our time together, and um, and it was you know it helped. It, it really helped. And then I really bawled my eyes out like two years later when I saw uh, Walk the Line. So it's interesting how sometimes you don't cry when you think you're gonna right. cry. Right. And I do have clients, especially men, who will say to me, you know, I didn't cry I, after my son completed suicide. I couldn't, and I didn't express my emotions. And then I was watching a show. And, you know, if you want to be a, a good, successful TV producer or movie producer, they all know you, you can't lie. You have to represent grief accurately and anger accurately or you're going to lose your viewer. And so often my male clients will say, and this show just got me. I didn't see it going in this direction. And then he's screaming at his wife for killing himself. And it's reminding me exactly what I wanted to say about my son. And I just lost it. And I, it doesn't matter. That's perfect. It doesn't matter to me how it comes out, but it definitely has to come out. Otherwise, it's going to come out in unhealthy ways. When you say it has to come out, what are some ways that uh, people can express their grief? I mean, because, you know, usually, I mean, besides crying, you know, we always think about crying right. and tears and that's healthy. But are there other ways that we can healthily express our grief? 
Right. And well, there's one more thing I want to say about scheduled grief. I always tell my clients after you set your timer or you have one of those little remote candles, after the time is up that you allotted, make sure to change your state. Go out, go for a jog, take a walk, cuddle with a pet, watch something funny, which brings me to healthy grieving. Your humor, I did, I, I did, I Googled you. It was, you were funny. You're funny. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it was great. I really enjoyed it. And I love it when someone makes me laugh out loud and I, I laughed out loud. And so I always say to my clients, you have something funny you like to watch, line it up for right after your scheduled grief, because laughing changes your body chemistry as well. And it is certainly a way to heal your body and relieve stress. And so that's a healthy way. Working out, um, any kind of workout, but specifically, if you want to do kickboxing or boxing or basketball, certain repetitive workouts where you have to do the same maneuvers or you have to pre-think the move ahead of time are really good for healing trauma wounds. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He actually talks a lot about that. So I would say any form of exercise, laughter, journaling. Do you do any journaling? Oh, I, I journal every day. Right now I'm practicing journaling, freestyle journaling with my non-dominant hand. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, so meditation is another really good skill. Some of my clients say, Alyssa, I cannot sit still. So I said, don't sit still. Then do self-hypnosis. Do a guided meditation. Do a meditation, catch yourself moving, and then sit still. You know, it doesn't have to be done perfectly. But learning to sit with those emotions and work through the, that pain is so much easier than running, running through it. And I always say, I promise you, you're going to find there's a peace and a solitude in this process. And they look at me in the beginning, like I have 10 eyes. And then they come back as, you know, halfway through the process and they say, I get it. I get what you were talking about. Um, and I think that's where we're moving as a culture. People are starting to accept that it's OK to talk about feelings. It's OK to have these intense feelings and it's OK to sit with them and know you're going to be OK. But say this feels crappy. Yeah. Why are we so afraid of, of I think part of why we're afraid of intense feelings is because uh, when we see intense feelings displayed, it usually gets people in trouble. There's usually a punching uh, of right. a wall, furniture flying, right. uh, people saying the wrong things. And I, so I think we're we like overcorrect the opposite direction. I think you're 100 percent right. Um, my brother wrote this book, Be Bigger Than You Think You Are, and in it he explains boundaries. And I love how he explains it because he talks about one of the boundaries being an emotional boundary. He says one is physical, one is temporal, one is verbal, one is mental. And when he gets the emotional one, I really like that because as a counselor, I hadn't heard that before. And I love to direct my clients to books. So in it, he says, if somebody loses their cool, like you just described, he says, I am not accountable for my own. I am accountable for my own behaviors, and I will not take responsibility for someone else's feelings. I will be empathetic, but I will not enmesh with or emotionally caretake in another adult. And I thought, wow, that's a big one, because a lot of us do want to fix it. We do see a reaction, and we overcompensate, like you just said, rather than just stepping back and saying, you know what, this is my emotional boundary, and I do not have to take care of or fix this person, and it's okay for me to even remove myself. You know, I love that. But, Go ahead. Oh. Well, but more. I don't want you to think I'm saying it's not okay to be angry. It's 100% okay to be angry. 
we just don't have to make other people accountable for our anger. Now, when you say not accountable for our anger, meaning like they don't have to share in our anger, is that, is that what you're saying? Like we, we don't have to have the same feeling on this. You know, we, exactly. We can say, I, I respect that that makes you angry. I see that makes you angry. I see you're really upset. You know, when you're calm, I'm happy to talk with you. But we don't have to engage at the time when, you know, they're so angry. They're, you know, wanting to hit a wall. And we could say, I often say, go hit a pillow, go hit a punching bag. I do have a punching bag in my garage, Leo. I hear some really sad stories, heartbreaking stories. And I don't want to carry that around with me and become an angry person. So I will punch that bag. And sometimes I cry. You know, I have to release what I've heard. And so does everybody else. You know, it's interesting about that. I used to work in a group home where uh with ki- you know kids of different ages from uh, from like 9 to 18 and the older boys especially the ones who uh had uh like in there for theft or, or fighting um uh, sometimes two boys would get into a fight and the boy who was winning the fight like he's clearly pulverizing I just like that word pulverizing <laughs> the other guy uh, would start to cry and, you know, he, he would go off and, and he would he would be crying and, and you could see in his eyes that he, he beat this kid up, but he didn't really want to do it. He, he had something else mm-hmm. he was trying to, to deal with and struggle with. He just didn't know how else to release that that emotion. So when you talk about hitting a punching bag in a gym until you cry, I, I, I completely understand that. You see people crying in yoga and in and, and, mm-hmm. and other classes. Right. Yep. Yep. And I think sometimes when I share that with my clients, especially my clients who um, are not as uh, I'm an introvert who can be an extrovert. But when I share it with my clients who are introverted, at first, I can see they're a little scared. And I say, you know, it's just my way of releasing some really bad news. I also meditate and it's very peaceful. There's you know, there's no one way to do this, but you have to find what works for you. So, you know, that old axiom, I think I think the words axiom, I always have these words in my head that I have no idea what they mean, but they, they just uh, <laughs> roll off my tongue. Um, where, they, where people say, you know, don't go to bed angry, you know, especially in a relationship. Does that mean that they're supposed to duke it out before, like, like we're going to stay you up know, until we figure this out? Like, what does that mean? Don't go to bed angry. I, I literally just had this conversation with a couple I'm counseling. I said, throw that one out the window. This is not to mean we want to be angry and go to bed upset. It's to mean that sometimes, so in this couple, one of them really needed time to process and the other needed to resolve it before they went to bed. But the, but the pressure for the one that needed the time to process, that's really not fair. So can we agree to say, hey, I love you, but I need time to process this. I am angry, but I'm, it's we're gonna be okay, just give me the time. Rather than acting like, no, it's all good. Because sometimes it doesn't happen that quickly. Right, it, it, sometimes it, it takes 24 hours you know, to, to calm down. I usually find that uh, you know, if I if I get if I get a night's sleep and and then I, I go for a walk and have some tea and get a little vitamin D on my on my yep. skin, I can I can find clarity or go punch a bag. Go, but but in yep, a moment, it took a while to figure that out. You know, because I I think you know when when I was young and, and full of testosterone, it, I would just get angry and storm out or you know just break up and it, you know I, I think a lot of people don't realize their process for processing. Ooh, I like that. Write that down, Leo Flowers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that is and, a good one. 
And so, so you know, like my girlfriend, she's quick. Like she could be in a moment and process. And, and me, I'm like, I, I got to, you know, I'm not really connected with my feelings. So it takes me a second to figure out right. what the hell is going on up in there. Uh, and, and, um, and I think that just stems from childhood. You know, it's the same thing as like trying to fix everything. As adults, we're always trying to fix it in a moment. If you grew up being the fixer in the family, you kind of take that with you as an adult. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we might work on if you were in a position and it was interfering in a relationship or at work, because being a problem solver when you're not asked to be could be a problem. Now, there was just a book released. Uh, uh, there's uh, uh, apparently a new stage of grief. There, there was the five stages. And now the, the new book uh, mentions that the last stage of grief is finding meaning. Uh, do you resonate with that idea? Um, I would say this, that if you can come to your grief experience with gratitude for the time that you had for that person, it's another way of saying what, what I think finding meaning would be. Um, it's much easier to, I don't want to say move forward. We don't, we, we move forward. It just gets easier. The loss is there. Um, but if we can, bring gratitude and remember the amazing times we shared with that individual, then that does help us in the grieving process 100%. And that norm normally, the ability to choose the good memories and focus and let go of some things does normally come towards the end of the process. That makes complete sense. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that helped me deal with my father passing away was uh, being grateful for what he did leave behind and the moments we did share and what he did say and, and the things that he did do. And, um, and to remember like the pieces of him that are still with me, you know, uh, to, and it just, it just kind of re, re makes me feel like he's, you know, he's still here in, in some form or fashion. So you're absolutely right about that gratitude. Uh, like that, you know, that person did serve, uh, a purpose, and uh, and just because they're physically not here doesn't mean that they're not here on, on some other level. Absolutely. I'm, if we're going to get into grief, you might have to cut me off because I could talk and talk and talk. But well, you know, talk and talk and talk. Then that's why it's a <laughs> podcast. The um, the thing with grief is that people think, well, time has passed, and so I'm okay. But if you don't do the work, you're still where you were on day one. The other um, misconception with grief is people think in the beginning, it's the hardest. And in the beginning, it could be shocking and really difficult. But what happens is you it's like being at the dentist when you have Novocaine. You go, you're, you're numb. So you go into automatic. And some of our automatics look pretty amazing. And we get a lot accomplished. But about three months, that, that Novocaine wears off and you start to feel how real the loss is. And that's when we need people and support the most. And people will say, oh, my friend says it's three months, get over it. And honestly, I want to cringe in my seat because they don't understand what they're saying and how hurtful it is to the person who's just, just really starting to wrap their thoughts around what happened. Um, another thing that happens is people say, oh, but I have this horrible memory. And I say, don't you understand that horrible memory is to help you not go into denial, to understand why it had to happen? Otherwise, you might be in denial. Your, your brain holds on to this horrific last image so that you know it happened. 
to help you process. And then another misunderstanding is people think denial is bad. And I think I heard you talk about fear in um, on Instagram. I tried to like it, Leo. I'm going to get really good at Instagram. I couldn't. I'm sorry. But it was really good. <laughs> you talked about fear. You talked about routine. They were both really good. You were right on. Um, but people say that, um, um, what was I saying before fear? Uh, denial. You're talking about denial. Oh, denial. Denial's bad. And I would say it isn't bad. It's actually our brain's way of taking a break. Um, so we just can't be in denial all the time. And it's the same for fear and it's the same for worry. They are not bad. They are wonderful tools to kind of take an inventory on where we're at. I teach my clients how to productively worry, how to be productively fearful. And that just means if you're afraid a child's going to drown in a swimming pool in your new house, then you productively worry. I can put up a fence. I can put an alarm on the pool. I can put a chime on the door. I can teach the kid to swim. I cannot buy a house with a pool. But after you've done all of that, there's no point in worrying because your worry is not going to change the outcome. Um, so we and the same thing with fear. If you're afraid, what are you afraid of? Let's see if because there's something often uh, there's a little truth to the fear. It's just been embellished. So let's get down to that little truth. Let's let's nail that one. Figure it out so you don't have to have this overgrown fear in your head. Um, does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense, especially that idea of, of worrying productively. And and I love also that you uh, are destigmatizing all these things that uh, are, uh, otherwise have this stigma. It's like you're in denial, uh, and it's always said with this with this sense of uh, like it's the worst thing to be and the worst place to be. And 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 it sounds like what you're saying is there is space and room for all the feelings. Is is just a matter of not sitting in any particular feeling. Right. And you can't force somebody to face a feeling they're not ready to face. So if they come in and I notice that they're struggling with denial, the first thing I can do is validate it. Hey, this is a great safe, safe space. But somehow you came to me and you're bringing this up. So clearly you're ready to tap on this issue a little bit. And let's try to strike some balance. Let's try to figure out a way to talk about it that feels safe. And often I'm 100 percent percent successful you know people you meet them where they're at and you it would be amazed how quickly they grow and flourish uh, does grief show up differently in children yes so the denial part uh, you see a child and they're upset one minute and then they're singing and playing the next and the parents like oh they're fine that was quick <laughs> and it's like no they just go in and out because they can only handle it in small chunks and that's how a child grieves. It's so innocent. And then at different ages, so when I was with Hospice Care Network, we ran support groups. And for the smallest kids, and they still have it in, in Long Island, Hospice Care Network, um, phenomenal group. They have tiny hearts for the kids that were, I think, eight and under, high hopes, and then teens together starting at teenage years. And we would go through an eight-week group. And the reason that we would separate the kids is because obviously you process different developmentally. And there's some good books that I could give you as a reference. It's like, how do we talk to the children? And it's it, it, the book is very age appropriate to each child. But then what happens is sometimes we would have repeat 
children often coming back at different developmental stages because when we get to age eight, we start to understand permanency differently than we did at six. And when we become a teenager, we start to process the loss differently than we did when we were six. So yes, kids process differently. And then each kid, depending on their age and who they are, they process uniquely. What I often come um, up against is different grieving styles. And if people aren't aware, it's sort of like different love languages, Leo. If you don't understand that there are different styles, you can't be respectful and understood you're, you know, that it's all good because we want validation while we're grieving. So often someone will say to me, but my spouse doesn't support me. They won't talk about it at all. Right. Well, that's their style. Your style is to talk to everybody. And neither style is right or wrong. And so we kind of work together to understand because there are so many misconceptions surrounding grief and there are so many misconceptions surrounding mental illness. So I am so thrilled that you have this mission and this podcast and all the things that you do because you are a pioneer in destigmatizing what's going on right now. Yeah, you know, because I realize that we're all on some level struggling with something, uh, whether we're aware or not, or we, we know someone who is it was going through it and it's just fascinating that it's one of those things that we, we don't really talk about we, we love to talk about that we're good and the exciting things and things that make us happy and joy and there's a hesitancy to express the sad the hurt the disappointments the the, the grief and the and the bereavement and um and they and they have equal weight you know that mm-hmm. it's it's like when we when we're able to to process and share uh, the 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 hurt and the sad and the, and the losses, it makes those joys and and uh, you know the 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 ups that much better, you know. Uh, Absolutely. And we feel more connected with the people around us. Mm-hmm. So that that brings up a really good point. Um, a lot of people can't tolerate somebody else's discomfort or pain. We this is a club the grief club, the mental illness club, that nobody wants to join unless they have to. And often, even even when they're dragged into it because of a loss or a mental illness, they still don't want to be part of it. You know, and it, it's, it's sad because it is so much a part of life. Grief is a much part of life as anything else. And mental illness is too. <laughs> and there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with talking about these things. Absolutely not. Uh, is, there, is the way someone grieves after they've lost someone who has chosen to end their life versus uh, lost someone to an accident. Does that show up differently? Yes, because the one where someone has taken their life for suicide has such a negative stigma, they can barely tell the truth to people without feeling judged. And that's really unfortunate because the individual that chooses to take their life didn't check in with the loved ones before they did it. You know, 90% of the time, 99% of the time, uh, had those people been aware, they would have, you know, done whatever they could to stop what was happening. Um, And sometimes I see it where it happens where the individual is is a new onset of a mental illness. And, you know, meds weren't working fast enough or, you know, they took a cocktail. And so it's like... You can play the blame game, but it's out of our control. So to to look at the survivors and make them feel worse for that just doesn't make any sense. Right. Uh, you know, it's uh, like you said, ultimately, like uh, uh, 
people are responsible for their own. And I, and I understand that, like, it would especially be tough for a parent to, it's, mm-hmm. to not feel in some way responsible for their kid uh, ending their life. I mean, I, it's like as the younger they are, the, the harder that that has to be, I would imagine. Um, Absolutely. My parents in my practice blame themselves over and over again. We So what's behind that, Leo, is that if we blame ourselves, we're in control. And if we're not in control, then we're not in control of anything. And that's even scarier because we've lost a loved one. And now we have to admit this illusion of being in control doesn't, you know, it's not. We're not in control. We're only in control of ourselves. I mean, these, I I have three children. They have minds of their own. They popped out that way. (laughs) I'm telling you. I mean, I can do what I can do, but kids are kids and they grow into the people they grow into. And I wish um, that we could prevent these people from hurting themselves. This is such a tough time, Leo. And, you know, even for family violence right now, you know, they talked about the difference between 9-11 and COVID and 9-11, people got to run to the safety of their homes. And when you get to run, you get to be physically active and protect yourself. You have less post-traumatic stress. When you have to be in a home where you can't protect yourself, where there's family violence or where things are really bad, we're going to get a lot of post-traumatic stress. So right now we're going to have, I think I just put an article on my Facebook page. It was saying the increase in mental illness just over these last three months and the concerns. And so we're going to need all the clinicians to come forward. We're going to need everybody to start understanding that mental health is really important. It needs more resources. It needs more support. And um, just basically that we are here, the clinicians are here. Like, so for example, NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, estimated 46 million people experience mental illness a year. This was before COVID. And only 41% come forward. Why is that? You know, what's interesting, like, so right now I have, uh, I have a couples therapist and I have an individual therapist. And I, I have to admit, there is uh, a wall in me, or a, a wall is not the right word, but uh, there's resistance in me every time I go into a session because I know they're documenting everything that I'm saying. And there's a part of me that feels like at some point this could come back and bite me in the butt. There's that fear, you, you know, and, and part of it stems from the, all the movies that we've watched where mm-hmm. somebody, you know, ran for office and then some news reporter dug up, you know, whatever, right. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then part of it is just people that I've trusted in general, not in, in terms of the mental health, but just in general, who have, uh, who have hurt me or let me down. And, right. and, I, and I think that a, a lot of people are, they have a mistrust of uh, the system. They, they feel like the mental health system is part of the bigger system or the government system. And if you don't trust the government, then it's hard for you to trust the mental health system. And so then you're just you're kind of stuck with like what direction to go. But if you're listening, well, you got to go. 
<laughs> Absolutely. It, and that would be a real shame because that's a generalization. And often when we make generalizations, it comes back to kick us in the butt. Absolutely. You know, not. And, and the truth is we take an oath for confidentiality. I only have the right to break confidentiality if you're hurting yourself or somebody else. And the first thing I do is get an emergency contact. And I say, I'll talk to you. If you refuse to cooperate and keep yourself safe, I will talk to this emergency contact. That Otherwise, you can't come and have sessions with me. So I'm I'm never sharing your information. And the only way I would ever say anything to anybody about you even being a client is if you were going to hurt yourself and I needed to keep you safe. Other than that, it's confidential. It's confidential. And you can't grow. And you, if you don't have trust and you don't feel safe, you're not going to grow. So that's up to the therapist. We need to provide that atmosphere. I am incredibly Rogerian, Carl Rogers, in that regard. I really feel it's important for me to present myself genuinely, to be caring, and to be appropriately empathetic. And my clients are awesome. They're capable human beings. They show up. They do the work. They do talk in the beginning about confidentiality, and they find really quickly I'm not sharing anything they say. I often work with family units. There could be six people in that family. It could be multiple generations. And unless I'm given permission to share, they say I have like the best poker face. I can't even acknowledge that because <laughs> I'm not supposed to say, you know, who I saw. So it's interesting. Um, you know, I think it's something a therapist earns. And I think it should be earned on both on, on both parts. And just like you had trouble with maybe some friends in the past, one of the one one tool I go over with some of my clients is how we choose the people that are trustworthy in our lives. You know, do they pass the test of what I would feel safe sharing my most personal information with? Um, so I, I applaud you for speaking out, and I hope that people do call up, get some, you know, feeling for who these therapists are and, and make a, a connection. I can tell you, I don't have partners, but in my office, I share a waiting room with uh, Dr. Celine Payot and Dr. Townley Peters, and they're both phenomenal. And we refer clients to each other all the time. So I, I guess I'm fortunate. I'm so surrounded by colleagues who I do feel are very professional and would share, you know, keep confidentiality and do abide by the rules. When you talk about you talked about tools for trusting other people, what are some of those tools that to help people discern who, who's trustworthy? So I would say to you, um, I'll use an example. I would say a client is having trouble in the office, shared information with some coworkers, and that information got around. So I say, what does that mean to you? Where is keeping your information private on your list of priorities? It, was that important? Was that, a, what number would that? So for me, that's number one. So you just, you have a ding right there. Had you kept that and it, I shared something with you, then you actually earned my trust. So it, you have to look at the behaviors and how you've been treated. I've, I've literally had clients who've been talked about or set up to take a downfall at work and then say to me, do you think I should still be friends with them? And I'll say, well, how do you feel? Do you feel safe? Do you feel like they could be a good friend? Have they demonstrated that's what good friends do? So it's really about returning to your values and your standards and then saying, do these people mirror my standards and values? 
I love that. It, it, it makes complete sense. If we, if we don't have a, a sense of values and, and a foundation for what we believe and, and what's important to us, it's hard for us to discern uh, who to say yes to and what direction to go and who to have in our lives. Um, so, Leo, can I ask you a question? You can. I want to know how you chose the title Before You Kill Yourself. You know, it's a, it's a long... <sighs> It's a it's a long question or a long answer, but I, I think I've distilled it down to I was on a plane and there I was I actually had thought of the title um, before because I was like, oh, I like that title. I, I didn't know why I liked it. I was just like that. It's a very I mean, one, it's it's something where it's intriguing and it's provocative. It's shocking. And, Absolutely. And uh, so I liked it for that reason. But, you know, that can't be your only why, right? And mm-hmm. so I'm on a plane, and this is the universe talking to me. And this is, I'm on a plane, and I'm talking to my buddy about the, the tiles. Like, yeah, I'm starting to think about starting this podcast called Before You Kill Yourself. Blah. And he was like, yeah, I would, I would tune in. And so we start talking. And his lady, who is about two, three rows ahead of us, or in front of us, and mind you, we're parked in a tarmac. Um, <laughs> she jumps up and she goes, "Be careful what you're talking about. You don't know who's listening in." And I'm sitting there like, "This might be the podcast title." And and she goes into telling us about how when she was like t- t- twenty years ago, eighteen years ago. She was in the bathroom with a gun to her head. Now, mind you, we're on a plane, and she's rose mm-hmm. in front of us, and she's saying this out loud. She's, she's turned around in her seat, and she's like, she's like, years ago, I was in the bathroom. I had a gun on my head. I was ready to pull the trigger, and then I heard my baby crying. And she was like, oh, shit, I got to go feed the baby. And she put the gun down and took care of her baby. Wow. Now. The story doesn't end there, but due to the sensitive nature of the second part of the story, I, I could share that with you off the podcast. But okay, uh, not, I look forward to it. Yeah, it, but it, okay. it's the whole story is wow. wow. Um, but but that's basically what made me say, okay, this is the title because it may, also made me realize when you look at statistics that the space between stimulus and response is uh, like a few seconds. Like they said, it's just like a few seconds where somebody decides to end their life. It's, it's, it's not usually hours. It's, it's usually these few seconds that if you could just catch them, if somebody just said hi or somebody sent them a text message or they, or they remembered uh, that they, they uh, wanted to learn how to make a souffle or if they if they remembered to you know take the clothes out the washer and put it in a dryer, like it's that's how fragile it is for most people who end their life. It's it's just a question of you know I I, I coach people and and when I have friends and when you read the stories, it's always like if somebody had just just waved at me, you know, on my way to the bridge. If somebody and right. and so it's like hold up be, before you kill yourself, it's like. Think about all the people who have waved at you. Like, why does somebody mm-hmm. need to wave at you 
<laughs> right now. And, and you're looking right. for a wave and you didn't even realize maybe somebody stared at you. Somebody said hi or honked the person who opened the door for you, all these other forms of waves, all these other forms of acknowledgement, all these other forms of people seeing you, helping you, assisting you, loving you, nurturing you, saying, showing that you're not alone in the world. All, all these other signs, you're looking for this one specific sign and you're missing all the other ways that, that the universe or, or God or whatever is showing up to, 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 to take care of you. And, uh, but, but yeah, it just... It, the, the 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 idea was that it's a small window, and if yes. I, if I could just catch you in that, like, hey, before you kill yourself, can can you make me a sandwich? And, and, <laughs> and then just you know, <laughs> let's see where we're at after that, you know. Um, but but that's the foundation uh, uh, for the title. Well, I love it. It caught my attention, and it's it's shocking, and that's perfect because it's going to get the attention of the people that you need to get the attention of. Yeah, and and trust me, I I definitely it it took months because I was like I don't want to trigger people just from the title and uh you know and and definitely some people have have messaged me that uh you know they they didn't want to listen to the podcast because you know they didn't know what they were in for it. but I, I feel like we we are so still on the other end of the spectrum of it not being talked about, of it still being a stigma that in order for us to really have this conversation and push through to the other side where everybody's wearing these shirts to say calm and gratitude. And it's like, Mm -hmm. why can't I wear a shirt to say I'm I'm sad or I'm hurt? Or, you know, it's like, why can't we express the the full 360 of all the emotions instead of just grabbing onto these trending? uh, it's, It's just weird that emotions are trending, you know? Right. Well, I think I do think it's great. I can tell you this, that the people I've worked with, nobody has been afraid to talk about it just because I brought up, are you suicidal? No one was ever like, okay, this therapist brought it up. Now I'm going to go do it. They were more like, okay, someone's going to talk to me real. This is, this is no bullshit. And they appreciate that. Um, And then they, you know, they're open. I say, do you have a plan? What is your plan? And why? Tell me your why. I'll meet you there. And then we go from there. Yeah, so many people, we have such a, a tough time just being direct, being honest. And, uh, and, and But there's so much power in just showing up and just saying, hey, I, I'm just going to be there. I had a friend, you know, call me because he, he was thinking about it. He had a plan. And uh, I just sat there. I just sat there with him for hours. Um, and, it, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing. But, um, you know, there's... No, but just, that's a beautiful gift that you gave him. There's just power in our presence. Just just being there. Mm-hmm. We don't have to have the right words. I, I didn't have... Lord knows I didn't have the, the words. I, I was just like, I'm just going to be here with you until, uh, until, you know, you're ready. Until I feel like there's space for where you don't need me here. Um, Leo, that's absolutely perfect. Do you know, everyone says to me, what do I do? My, my friend is grieving. My mother is grieving. And I say, most people just want some a presence in the room. Just go there and be there. Don't be in the way. Don't have to have a conversation. Just be there. And so that's brilliant that you did that, that 
you know, you knew instinctively how to help your friend. Yeah, you know, because I find it even in, in my in a relationship, especially with this quarantine, you know, I was saying to my girlfriend the other day, I was like, we don't have to fill all the space. You know, like we could like like we could we could we could it's okay if we if we if we have moments where we're not doing anything or just kind of daydreaming or you know, just looking at the ceiling in awe. Like you know, it's we don't have to fill all the space and and it, and and there's something about our culture I think that makes us feel like we you know, from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed, you know, we got to be out there in the fields uh, tending to them or something. And uh, and we're, we're just afraid to say we're doing nothing. There's some I, I, I think agree. I, I think the part of the when, when I when I think about people who, you know, some people who end their life, they're like they're these perfectionists. And it, it stems from this idea that we, we have to be doing so much with our, like every day, you know, give it a hundred percent and, and don't sleep. And, uh, did you give it your all? And, you know, it's like, it's, it's okay to, to do nothing and to say, Hey, what are you doing? Nothing, nothing. So Mm -hmm. I, so I can later do something. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of times I'll have clients that I work with who struggle with a mood disorder and they'll be like, Oh, I'm having a bad day. And so I ended up doing nothing. And I'm like, do you think that only happens to you? Because <laughs> there are plenty of people who don't have mental health challenges and they they also have bad days and they also sometimes have great days and want to do nothing. So they're def- that's, it's all about balance. So I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's sort of like when you're working out and, you know, I would just relate this to cycling since that's what I'm doing right now. And, and they'll say, you know what, we're going to have a tough hill coming up. If you want to take a real break now and, you know, knock your cadence down or, you know, your resistance down, do it. Because if that's what's going to fuel you for the next hill, then do it. And I love that way of thinking because we all do need to schedule downtime. And that's one of the tools that I actually recommend to my clients when they're going through different anythings. You know, make sure your self-care is there and part of your self-care is downtime. Uh, now, what what do you do in your downtime? How do you recharge? I, I know you said you hit the bag. Uh, I do. And you meditate. I, do you transcend? Are you a transcendental meditator? Have you heard Oprah and Deepak's meditations? I really like them. Wait, who? Oprah and Deepak. Oh God! Have... I, sw- I swear. <laughs> let me tell you something. Oh, I'm no. sw- why is Oprah on everything? Deepak is enough. <laughs> <laughs> Oprah, Oprah coming in. She ain't got Deepak's voice is so yeah. soothing. It is. And, and he's so he shares such great tidbits. Sometimes I have to pause it and be like, wait, let me process that and see if I can, you know, own it and make it my own. And I'm like, no, nah, maybe tomorrow. But I really liked it. <laughs> and then here come Oprah with her surely voice. I don't need Oprah at the beginning <laughs> of the Deepak. Like, I'm a huge fan of Oprah. I love her show. I love what she's done and what she's built. But she just feels like the puff daddy of, of everything. Like she doesn't have to be, she's on the magazine. She's on a meditation app. She's just everywhere. I don't need you on the, Deepak is enough. He has a, a billion followers. He knows right. what he's doing. And, and why, Oprah? Like there's no need. I don't know why they even teamed up. It's not even fair. <laughs> it's nothing. 
She adds to, nothing to, to that meditation. You know why they teamed up? They teamed up probably to reach wider audiences because they are two very different personalities. That would be my guess. Regardless, I really do like it. And that is one thing that I do try to do every day. I love spending time with my loved ones. So I know that when things are crazy with work, you know, I have to I have to schedule as importantly as clients. I have to schedule my time with my loved ones as well. So that's important for me. I love humor. So send it my way, Leo, because you are funny. And um, I I think another besides exercise, I think journaling and writing things that you're grateful for really make a difference because it, it shifts your focus. And if you're you can't be grateful and upset at the same time. And I'm not asking you not to be upset. You know, you come to my office, it's going to get real. But I am saying we are in control of how we shift our focus. And if you want to shift your focus real fast, gratitude is a really good way to do that. I'm all about that gratitude and the journaling and and the shifting of focus. You, You have three kids, you said? I do. And I have to tell you, it's so funny. I use my tools. I don't just preach. And, you know, I practice what I say. So I know they work. Um, I wanted to tell you one. I think it was on your podcast with Lori Gottlieb. You guys started talking about something, and I meant to get back to it and make a note. I didn't have time, but maybe you'll remember. She's awesome. A client sent me an um, email and said, hey, this woman reminds me of you, and I feel like I'm hearing her voice and her words. You have to read this book. And then I read it, and I was like, oh, my God, I love her. She, I just completely resonated as both a therapist, a human being, and also as a as a client, you know, as, as a somebody else's, you know, I have my own therapist. So I thought it was wonderful. And I'm so glad she joined your mission and that you have names like her on your schedule here on your docket. Um, one of the things you guys were talking about, I think I, I think you were saying, like, how do you go from like get rid of a negative thought? I don't remember specifically what it was, but one of the tools that I thought I would share with you was how. I help my clients neutralize a negative thought. So if we have time, I can tell you about that real quick. Oh, yeah. Okay. So often, if we have a real strong belief about something, we are not going to be convinced the opposite. So if I think I'm ugly, I'm not going to be like, oh, my God, I am not knock them dead gorgeous, right? Or if I think my life sucks, I'm not going to be like, my life's amazing. So I always say to my clients, let's just try to neutralize it. If you think your life is horrible, you just lost your loved one, that was your everything, then can we neutralize that? Can we say, well, it doesn't feel so good, but I look forward to my workouts or I enjoy my TV time, or that was a great meal with friends. And so sometimes it's not so bad. And then once we're able to kind of live in the neutral, then we can say, you know what, sometimes my life is great. So I find that that's a tool that works for some people when their brain says, "Uh uh-uh, no way, I'm just not going to buy into that. So I thought I would suggest it because maybe it will help some of your viewers. No, that, that's really helpful. Uh, it, it's kind of like meeting yourself halfway, right? It's like, all right, we don't have to do that, but let's try this and then see where we're at after that. Is that kind of what exactly. you're saying? Exactly. And so you're, you're just saying, again, it's that it doesn't have to be perfect. We can find small things. It can be that candlelight of hope, that little candle in the dark room. That's it. We don't need it to be, you know, the stadium. Having three daughters... You say I have three daughters, correct? Two, two daughters and a son. Two daughters and a son. How old is the oldest? 
13. And how old is the youngest? 10. So I actually have, I'm a twin and there's several sets in the family. I actually have virtual twins. One's adopted and they're, the girls are three weeks apart. Wow. Yeah. My question is, how do you help them process uh, failure? Uh, like if they get an F or a D or they don't make the team, uh, uh, how do you help them think about that? So, you know, our instinct as a parent, most instinct, most parents anyway, is, oh, my God, I want to fix it. Oh, my goodness, I don't want to see them crying. And, and this is hard. But I, I think in that struggle is where they grow. I know. So I just sit there. I really try to just be present for them and hear what they have to say because they need to struggle. They need to experience what it's like to be disappointed um, they have also seen, um, they've seen me go through a challenge and be like, oh, I am, I'm, I'm in the, a bad place. This, this is horrible. And they've said like, well, mom, what are you going to do? And I've said, watch, you know, I'm capable. I'll figure it out. But right now I just feel overwhelmed. And so they get to see how somebody is capable of going from a place of feeling overwhelmed and it's okay to, Hey, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to tackle this again and, and we're going to figure it out. And I hope that I give them that as a role model, and I hope I allow them the space. Um, it's it's in my training, so there are times I have to catch myself where I want to run up and, and make it better, but I, but I don't because I know ultimately that makes it worse. It's that. Have you ever heard about the um, butterfly and the cocoon and the old man? I haven't. Okay, it's it's a cute one. I use it in grief a lot. Um, so there's an old man sitting on a bench at a park when we used to be able to go to the parks <laughs> and we weren't in quarantine and there's a butter, uh, um, a chrysalis and he sees the butterfly trying to break out and it's struggling and struggling and struggling. So he goes home, he gets a scissor, he comes back and he cuts the chrysalis. And what he doesn't know is the process of the butterfly struggling is going to squeeze the blood out of its fat body and into the wings so it can fly. But now he just cut the chrysalis. And so that never happened. He didn't have the struggle. And now this butterfly can't fly. And so it's a really good analogy to remember when you see somebody in pain, you can be supportive without trying to fix it. Oh, my God. That was so sad. I'm going to need grief therapy after this. <laughs> oh, my God. I was thinking about no. this poor butterfly just walking around. All the other butterflies are butterflying. We're going to listen to your comedy, Leah. That's what we're going to do. What were we going to say? No, I'm waiting to listen to your comedy. You're going to send, you know, some bites. <laughs> I am. I am. Uh, I, I do have a show. Uh, I do a show every Saturday called The Weekly Takeaway on Zoom. And I'll, so I'll send you the link. Oh, uh, please for do. That. What time is that? Uh, is that Seven uh, o'clock uh, Pacific time. So I think that's okay, awesome. nine o'clock your time. Nine or ten. 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 But that's uh, OK. Oh, yeah. The kids will be in bed by then. But is it is it uh, R rated? Uh, it's it is R rated, but it's not raunchy. It's just not. P. It's not Disney. You know what I mean? 
Right, right. Well, that's like, fine. Yeah. The kids, unfortunately, are not always in bed at that time. But either way, I will tune in because I, I really look forward to that. I love it. I love it. In, in terms of grief, uh, is there anything that we haven't uh, discussed? I, I, I guess but one of my last questions is for people, I have a friend of mine who he went through, uh, 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 he just broke up eight-year toxic relationship uh, and then uh, also got rid of some friends who uh, weren't aligned with his values, uh, was diagnosed with cancer, and then also uh, lost his mom recently, like in the past week. And so all this happened within the past 12 months. So wow. you have cycles of grief on top of cycles of grief. Where do you even begin with, with that? And, and uh, how do you even begin to process those different levels of, of grief? Right. So that's what we call complicated grief. And it's complicated because you didn't have enough time to process the first loss or you didn't for whatever reason. And then there was another loss on top of another loss. Um, so you really do have to take time to go through the different losses and you can do that grief work with a counselor and, and you start to identify maybe there are some things that are similar, but maybe there's something that happened in the first loss that was triggered again and again. And that's the issue you start with. So it really it's so individualized. It's really hard to speak generally to to these things, because when you hear a client speak and the way they talk and what they keep repeating, that's how you know where you need to start um, or, you know, what you can invite, ask them, hey, this is what I'm hearing. Do you want to start here? Um, you'd be surprised how many clients, when you give them the tools or the words, suddenly, you know, find their voice and are like, you know what, I need to start here or I need to talk about this or actually, you know what, it started much earlier. So I don't have any kind of quick answer because it is a process. And um, that would be something he would have to work through if he wants to journal about it. If he didn't want to go talk to somebody then he could journal about it and maybe try to separate it out and, and, you know, figure it out. Um, you know, so many people, uh, I know, especially people who are struggle with like dyslexia. Uh, they're not fond on journaling or writing. Is there, a, is there another Hey, form? I have dyslexia. <laughs> well, I have, I know one of my, but one of my, uh, I'm just thinking about a, a friend of mine who like, she hates to read. She hates to write, you know, it's just, it's a, it's, she's, but she's very verbal. She, she has a, she has a verbal dexterity. And I was just wondering for people who don't feel comfortable putting pen to pad, is there, is there another way of, for them to uh, express and, and keep track of their emotions? Well, have they, oh, for, so these uh, adult coloring books are actually incredibly therapeutic. So that would be another um, piece of advice, actually. When we watch a movie that we've already seen and we, we're comfortable with and makes us feel good, we know what to expect. So our brain kind of goes into automatic and we start processing all these emotions. So it can be very, very therapeutic. And the same thing with the monotonous kind of adult coloring book, you get to process while you're distracted by something that you're doing, something tangible. Um, talk therapy for somebody like your friend sounds amazing because she's verbal and the opportunity to get to hear her tell her own truth and, and then work through it and adjust it and change it and tweak it could be very powerful for her. I love that. What, what got you into this? You know, you asked me what, what you know, uh, why did story. I name it? What got you into this line of work? Um, so 
I am a, my twin and I, we were born from parents who had prior marriages. And so my parents were significantly older than everybody else's parents when I was a kid my age. And my father came down with vascular dementia in a time when people didn't even talk about dementia. If they did, it was a whisper. And there was no support. We took him, he was very intelligent. So when we took him to the doctors, they said, well, he's still operating up here, which was above average. And we said, well, that's great, but he used to operate even higher. And no, they were even hesitant to give the diagnosis until things were a shambles. I mean, a shamble, a mess. So I started volunteering at a one of the first um, daycare day centers in Long Island for dementia and Alzheimer's. And I just naturally started talking to the other survivors there. I was one of the youngest. And I just was giving, you know, helping people. And they said, oh, are, are you a professional? I said, no, I just have my dad. It's just the experience I've had. And um, so I, I made up my mind. I was like, you know what? I should go back and get paid for this. <laughs> so I did. But I have to tell you another story really quick because this is one of the best stories. And it happened. I would later go back to the same place and intern there. And I would meet a couple that were survivors from um, one of the Nazi camps and I was an intern and I was very bold. And I said, I know I'm not supposed to ask you this. I was doing the intake and her husband just went out to the group. I said, but I am an intern and I, I'm so curious. And if it, I'm crossing a boundary, please tell me. I can't help but notice the numbers on your arms. And she started to tell me an amazing story. And I said, did you ever share any of this with your family? She said, you're the first person I've ever shared this with. And one of the things she said to me, besides the horrors that she lived through and how she lost her whole family, um, was that her father would, you know, pointing to her head, would say, they can take everything from us, but they can never take this, pointing to her brain and her intelligence. And she pointed then to her husband and she said, and now look, because he was losing his mind. And I said, so how do you do it? You two appear like the happiest people you know, what's the secret? And she said, Alyssa, every day I make a choice to be happy. And so I said, can I use your story? Can I share this? I know I'm not, I don't have to share the horrors you live through. If you don't want other people to know that I said, I think that's a shame because it's part of history, but can I share that you make this choice? Because this is one of the happiest couples I have ever met. You would never know what they had been through. And I understood her reasons for not wanting to share it with her family, but they'll never know how strong and amazing this woman was the way I got to. So I just felt like that was a gift and a sign that I was doing the right thing. And, you know, and I switched careers. I was an insurance broker. And so it, that's pretty much how I got into it. What an incredible story. What a way to round out the podcast. Alyssa, is there is there anything that we haven't talked about or that you, you haven't shared that you feel like would be beneficial for anybody who is uh, grieving right now or if they've lost someone to uh, suicide? Yes, I, I absolutely want to say that there is the 1-800-799-SAFE number because family violence is real and people should reach out. They don't have to suffer in silence. And I would like people 
to use it. Um, it's there for a reason. The other thing I would like to say is it is really hard right now to grieve and take part in whatever your normal ritual would be that would bring you comfort if you've lost a loved one. So get creative. If you can't get on a Zoom call, or if you do, have, you're on a Zoom call for a shiver or a funeral, you know, wear the the person's favorite color. Um, you know, have everybody. If the if your grandmother liked flowers and your grandmother passed, then everybody go outside and pick a flower and bring it to the Zoom call. You know, do creative things like that. And for those that can't get on a Zoom call because they don't have the technology or the access, write down five things you loved about this person or you admired or you know you want to know more about, and then reach out to the person who whose loss it is at a later date, because it's not going to be too late. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, it is a process and people don't, you know, a few months down the line, they actually need more support than you think. And so there's no, it's never too late to reach out with and and experience and kind of have your own ritual with that person to, to feel like you have some closure in the process at least. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I guess I have I have two more questions. One is uh, on Facebook. Are you still there? Yes. Oh, okay. It's not, it, the, the sound changed for for whatever reason. Something uh, clicked. Um, the on, on Facebook, or sometimes you will find out that someone is, is grieving. What's the appropriate text or voicemail to leave to someone? Uh, is it you know thoughts and prayers, sending my condolences? What's the best thing to say to someone who's just lost someone? Uh, you know, absolutely. I think what you said too before, you know, it's okay to say, hey, I don't know what to say. I don't know what I can do for you, but I wanted you to know I'm thinking of you and I'm sorry this happened. You know, I don't, I think trying to minimize it and say things like, oh, they're in a better place. I can tell you my clients hate that because the better place would have been with them. So even if somebody suffered, you know, Trying to make yourself feel better when you reach out to somebody else isn't what we want to do. Trying to just be real and say, hey, this is a really tough one. I don't know what to say is better than saying, you know, something like, oh, they're in a better place. Saying I send my condolences, you know, any of the standard lost phrases, those are fine, too. But when you speak from your heart, even if you mess up, people realize it's coming from your heart and they're OK with it. Thank you for sharing that. And then last question is I always feel like, and ask this of all my guests, because I always feel like there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Alyssa? So, you know, I wish I knew why again. I wish I knew their why because I would really want to speak to that. But I can tell them, don't do it. Don't do it because you're going to feel differently. And if you are doing it because you think you're not valued and you don't fit in this world, I can tell you feelings aren't facts. So hang on there. Reach out for help. You are worth it. And you don't have to think so. You just have to trust me. I love that. And, and speaking of you, where can people find you? Plug all of your things. Okay, so I'm at at one number one peaceful person, and I am um, that would take you straight to the Facebook. I have elissashenkin.com. That'll take you to my web page, and I am getting on Instagram, Leo. I'll get there. Um, I've just learned to link them. I'm doing all that, 
And then all of my phone numbers and contacts are listed on those sites. It's 561-676-0107. And I am happy to help in any way I can. And like I said, I have wonderful colleagues if, you know, I don't have an opening. Whatever it is, don't let that stop you. Reach out. There are hotlines there for a reason. And you are not alone. Uh, what was the, the name of your, you said your brother wrote a book? Yes. Um, did you see my webpage by any chance? He also does photography, or he did in his past life. Um, and so he did the photography on my webpage. He wrote Be Bigger Than You Think You Are, and he is at BeBiggerToday.com. And do you know, have you heard any talk about changing your story? He talks a lot about that, which I love, because we all go around saying, hey, this is who I am, this is my story, and then we prove it. So if you want to change your life, change your story. And so that's the gist of his book. And I really do love it. I actually bought a bunch from him. I wouldn't let him give them to me. And I gave them out as gifts to my clients. I love for Christmas, that. For Hanukkah. I, yeah. I'm going to link those uh, in your website and all the things in the show notes. Uh, okay, great. And so look for that in the show notes. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for going to get help, for reaching out, for going to a therapist, a coach, a counselor, group therapy, reading a book, journaling, uh, going for a walk, hitting a punching bag, whatever you got to do, it, it still requires for you to, to do some work and make the first step so to, to your recovery and, and to cope with the grief. Uh, reach out, 1-800-SUICIDE. Their international phone numbers in the show notes for those of you overseas. There's no reason for anybody not to get the help that they want. There, there's free resources, their chat numbers, all that is linked in the show notes. Uh, go to thrivewithleo.com for one on one coaching with yours truly. Thank you, Alyssa, and we will talk to you soon. Let's get to tomorrow together. <laughs>